Okay, so I'm supposed to say... Listen to our podcast and tell other people to also. (laughs) Not in that tone. (laughs) Yeah, okay. All right. With less less desperation. Right. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. I am Andrew Seligson, president of Campus Compact, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Marisol Morales, our vice president for network leadership. Hello, Marisol. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Emily. And Emily Shields, the <laughs> aforementioned or aforereferenced or whatever that is. Emily Shields, executive director of Iowa and Minnesota Campus Compacts in the plural. It's uh, me. Hello, Emily. Hi. Uh, how's everybody doing? Pretty good. Yeah. It's cold here in Chicago. All so cold in Iowa. <laughs> Mostly wet in Boston, I would say, if we're uh, announcing the weather conditions, the defining weather condition, uh, wet here. Glad we yeah. got that out of the way. Yes, yeah, so we've covered that. Um, yeah, we are. None of us, at least, is in a place that has kind of consistently better winter weather than anybody else's, I think. So we're all. No, I used to be. Yeah, it's true. Those those days are over, but uh, it's really also true. And I don't, to that. I don't want to. There, there are other challenges in California, obviously. In fact, as we speak, I don't want to make light of that. But uh, you know, uh, really bad conditions, fires going, etc. So challenges. Well, and, uh, yeah, we are. if if I can take that moment to just. Uh, implore our listeners to support the victims of the campfire in Northern California. Our VISTA leader in our office, um, his wife, that his wife's family is from paradise where, uh, the town that was completely leveled by that fire and they've all lost their homes and businesses and lots of people are going through things there. And I know there are some great funds set up, including the, um, community foundation up there. So people can support that disaster it's a great thing to do yes yeah uh no it's a great point um so we this is our first time talking together since uh the midterm elections of 2018 Uh, i think everybody has now seen overall record turnout I think it's fair to say since anybody's been counting measuring turnout uh, in elections for a midterm, as well as a disproportionately large jump among youth voters from 16 percent to 31 percent. So almost a doubling in participation, at least based on early data. Uh, I was excited to see all of that. So exciting. Yes, we just saw a ton of energy on campuses across Iowa. Of course, we won't know exactly how college students and our network voted for for a little while. But as you said, with the youth turnout numbers where they are, I think it's fair to say that it was it was high. And in Iowa, yes, it was record midterm um, elections. And we just had a Civic Action Academy for Uh, Over 160 students from Iowa and Minnesota uh, here in Des Moines this past weekend. We did one one session that I was a part of leading was about local government. And everyone in that room had voted in the midterms. But I'm even more proud to say that way more than usual kept standing when I asked if they had voted in local city council and school, school board elections. So, I mean, these are people that you know, 
in their first several elections are showing up every single time, which to be honest, I didn't even do. Like it took me a while to recognize the importance of local elections. So that was super encouraging to me. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I think um, even here in Chicago, you saw record youth votes. And I think the amount of engagement that's taking place, not just around voting, but overall community issues is is on the rise. So it's going to be exciting to see sort of what the future brings in terms of overall uh, participation in our uh, government processes. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that stood out to me is the the fact that the increase among young people was greater than the overall increase is evidence that the efforts that we've seen kind of the real growth of an infrastructure to support student voting, student participation, youth participation more broadly, that it's making a difference uh, and getting more people engaged who would not have been without those organized efforts. And our next episode uh, of the Compact Nation podcast, we will focus on some of those efforts, some that Campus Compact has been involved in directly and others that many of our partners around the country have been leading. So that's a little uh, teaser for next time. This time, uh, we have an interview, and Marisol, do you want to let us know uh, a little bit about that? Sure. Um, We have an interview with uh, Persephone Lewis. She is um, the... She's a professor of practice in ethnic studies and tribal liaison at the University of San Diego in California. And um, given that this is American Indian Heritage Month, we wanted to bring a uh, voice uh, into our uh, podcast and in our conversations around engagement, uh, around tribal engagement and universities engagement with uh, indigenous uh, communities and First Nations. So we had an interview with Persephone about her work um, and the work that's going on particularly with uh, tribal communities uh, in California, but looking at it more broadly across the United States. So we will listen to that interview now. Again, thank you for uh, being available and willing to talk to us. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what a tribal liaison does and what your role is specifically? Sure. So, um, so my main role really is to support the sovereignty and self-determination of the 18 tribes that are located in San Diego County. Um, so I take a, a very place-based approach. Our university sits on the traditional territory of the Kumeyaay Nation. So the majority of my efforts go towards supporting the needs of those tribes. Um, but then I also, you know, work with tribes all over Southern California also. And um, so I kind of I divide my work into four areas. Um, so the first one is serving as an advisor to the campus community. So I try to be available for anything that comes up that's related to Native American issues, concerns. Um, the second is I engage the local tribal communities. So, you know, a lot of my focus the past two years has really been around outreach because that's what the communities have told me that they really want from USD. Um, So outreach, and then it's expanded a little more. We've been able to um, start partnering with tribes to submit funding proposals to be able to support some of the efforts that they have in their communities. Um, One in particular is a STEAM 
project that one of the local tribes is doing. Um, so just trying to really bring the resources from the university to the communities. The third is educating our campus community on Native American perspectives and experiences. I think our K-12 system really does a terrible job of educating Americans yeah. about, you know, the Native experience, but then also the contemporary context of Native peoples, you know, so the fact, you know, the fact that we are a political group, not just a racial or ethnic group, um, you know, it's just, yeah, oftentimes when we're discussed, it's in relation to federal policy and not really about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really try to, to have, you know, some main educational events. And then my last um, priority is supporting our Native students. So we have about 190 Native students on our campus, uh, undergrad through grad. And I, you know, try to be available, plan events, um, serve as an advisor to our American Indian Student Organization, just sort of whatever I can do to support Native students here. Great. Thank you for that. That's uh pretty comprehensive. Is is it uh, usual for universities to have tribal liaisons? Where do you see that in terms of the trend in, in higher education? Um, are there networks uh, around tribal engagement um, that you're a part of? Yeah, so I, I definitely think that it's on the rise. Um, I think, you know, within the past 10 years, there's just been a lot of a lot more attention kind of given to indigenous people. I think that we have a lot of pioneers that have been fighting for a long time to really have universities recognize their responsibilities to indigenous people as land grant institutions, but then also just as institutions located in traditional territories. Um, So I definitely see more of a push in California. We have a number of similar positions to mine and they're not all tribal liaison, um, Some of them, you know, have other titles, but have some similar characteristics. I think every campus kind of does it a little differently. Um, But we have definitely seen a rise in California in um, universities, designating positions, creating, you know, native student centers, those sorts of things within the past, probably like five to 10, probably five years. I'd say five years. We've really seen an increase. So we, um, our big conference, you know, we have a few big conferences. I feel like Indian country just generally is is pretty small. So uh, I'm really fortunate to be part of a network that really supports what we're trying to do uh, in higher education overall. Um, And then we have a local, we have a local group within like the San Diego, Southern California region. Um, We coordinate a couple conferences. So we see each other pretty regularly. Um, And then we also have the UC system created an American Indian Counselors and Recruiters Association, but they have opened their group to all of us. Lots of networking happening. And why do you think there's a rise in this uh, in higher ed? I think um, I think there's well, I think a couple things. I think for one, the tribes um, have become more significant players within their local sort of communities. Um, they have funding, you know, they they have economic development now. And they're able to, I think, really have some power through how they're donating money to universities and then what those expectations look like on their side when they do give those, you know, monies for endowed chairs or for centers or positions. Um, I think locally the San Manuel tribe has been a big advocate of education and has really taken the lead on sort of how tribal communities can form partnerships with universities um, and then what that reciprocity looks like. I also think that 
we have some great Native scholars that have really been pushing out a lot of research and a lot of uh, publications that really support the need for, um, you know, for, for providing more resources to Native students who are at universities, um, but then also sort of that responsibility also that universities hold to kind of get them into universities in the first place. So those sort of earlier outreach um, programs that are so important to ensuring that Native students are able to attain higher education. Um, so I think, you know, it's been efforts from multiple fronts really pushing. And I think with the economy improving, universities, you know, have a little more leeway to be able to support these sorts of positions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk to um, us a little bit about sort of um, community engagement with First Nations and Native communities? Uh, what does that maybe historically look like? What is What are some dreams that you have for what that engagement could be, both in terms of Native students, maybe engagement um, back with uh, local tribes, but also non-Native students and their understanding connection to Native communities in their areas? Sure. So I think, you know, I was an undergrad in 2001 at a local university in California, San Diego. Um, and there wasn't a lot of talk about Native students in the university at all. Um, I think that from a tribal perspective at that time, you know, that was gosh, a long time ago, (laughs) 17 years ago. Um, I think the tribes are really focused on just getting their students to graduate high school. And that was, you know, that was the focus. I think there's, you know, been a constant history of public education failing Native students. And the tribes were really focused on how they could support just getting their, getting their students to graduate. I think as time has gone on, this expectation around going to college has really increased. You know, tribes are Sovereign nations have responsibility for all of the infrastructure within their reservation boundaries, and they really need their people to get educated, you know, so I think that there's been a much bigger push and and efforts on the tribal side to be able to get their students into college. and so I think that, that that's a big part of it. I really approach my relationships with the tribes from a, a position of acknowledging and respecting and valuing their sovereignty. You know, so within Indian country, we always talk about the government to government relationship between tribes and the federal government. And I think um, that a lot of us try to extend that to also be similar types of framing of relationships with institutions. You know, so um, so for me, it's really about, well, what are the needs of the community and how can I support what they need to be thriving nations versus, you know, what the needs of the university are. Um, I'm really fortunate because I feel like at USD, they've really entrusted, they, they, well, first of all, let me back up a little bit. When we created the position, we, um, we framed it after Cal State San Marcos, which is a local university. They have mm-hmm. a tribal liaison. They were one of the first to have one. Um, and they really put her within this um, position of being an advisor to the community. So that was the same way that we structured my position. There are some campuses that don't have positions like that. They'll have positions on the student affairs side or the outreach side, but they don't have positions that are really um, placed within the institution in that sort of way. Um, so I think this this position is really great in, in doing that. I also think um, my position is the first to, to really be a professor slash tribal liaison position, which at first seemed like it could be difficult because of the teaching responsibilities. But I've really found is that it's given me more leverage at the university on the academic side, right? Because a lot of what happens happens in the 
classrooms. And if you are not in the classrooms, if you can't identify with faculty, you know, I always tease like being in the trenches of having to teach, um, then then you're sort of outside of a big part of the of the campus. So I think that you know, with me being a professor of practice, I'm able to be in those spaces and form those relationships with faculty. So I've had, you know, great success in impacting curriculum, um, having them do land acknowledgement statements included in their syllabi and, you know, different things like that. Having them support the events that I plan on campus, you know, having it be extra credit or mandatory within their classes. So I think that's kind of given my position a little extra leverage. Um, but for me, it's really just about respecting the, the relationship with the tribe and, and really putting their needs at the center when it comes to how I'm going to engage. And so what does that look like in terms of uh, maybe community engagement efforts uh, as well, uh, placing students uh, to do either service learning projects or uh, community engagement. Um, are there uh, are there courses or faculty that you work with that are working with um, local tribes and what does the preparation look like for, for that? Yeah, so I think that that is an area that I have been very um, sort of hesitant. I think that, um, my, you know, because I'm teaching, I've taken the lead on sort of bridging the classroom with the tribal communities. Um, so I employ a decolonized pedagogy where everything that my students do support, you know, the needs of um, of. The, of, of a local community or local native organization. Um, so for example, I do a lot of project-based um, assignments, you know, so creating videos for a tribe. Um, we have a big youth conference that happens in the area every year. So they, in the past, they've done the, created the programs, created the video, um, things like that. I, I have some colleagues who also have been working with the local tribes, um, but really, um, she had a lot of experience with Aboriginal communities in Australia. So I felt comfortable encouraging a relationship um, because I felt like she already had that experience and sort of knew how that how that works and what to expect. Um, the thing with the tribes here is they're really small. So some of these tribes, you know, are 150 tribal members. And so it's important to me that we not overwhelm them. So if a whole, you know, if a class of 30 students wants to right. do some kind of community engagement, unless it's like, let's come and fix the playground or something like that, um, it, it's really, it, it can be really difficult. Um, and then we have an organization called American Indian Recruitment Programs, and they do a lot of uh, um, higher ed readiness sort of stuff, college readiness. And so we've had partnerships with them where we... Um, had them there is a six week program. So we incorporated them and their students and like mentor relationships with undergrads in our American or intro to American Indian studies course. Um, so those have been sort of some of the things I think, um, as we progress, I've really been trying to think about how I can have these quality relationships. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think it's difficult. I think when you're talking about indigenous communities that have been exploited and marginalized, um, you have to be really careful about how that's done and what it looks like. Absolutely. And so what would you say in terms of like best practices uh, that universities uh, or folks who are uh, in institutions of higher education, uh, colleges and universities, um, should think about or or do if they're exploring uh, engagement with uh, Native communities? 
Well, I think there's a lot of things that they can do that doesn't necessarily engage the community, but honors the community. And I think in this country where we don't talk about Native people, where they are invisible, where the information that our students do learn is so skewed to be from, you know, a specific perspective, I think that universities really need to start with incorporating land acknowledgement statements, knowing who are the local tribes, doing their research, you know, to know what their history was, what has their relationship been with um, the local governments, with the state government, what are some of their cultural practices? You know, a lot of tribes have um, open events. So maybe if they have a powwow or something like that, you know, starting starting in, in those in those places to just start to understand who they are. I think oftentimes when I'm approached to do work with the Native community, it's usually prefaced from like, well, I've always been very interested in Native Americans and, you know, I would really love to do something. So to me, it's sort of framed more from this, like, I want to work in Native communities perspective instead of, well, what do the Native communities need from us? And then that's how I'll work with them. Um, And I, I think that that is just it creates this relationship that is already unbalanced, right? That centers the needs of the professor or the campus. And really we need to be centering the needs of the communities. Um, And it takes time, you know? And so that's the other thing is you're, there isn't a situation I can think of where um, a campus has really been able to just come into a community, you know, without laying the foundation and building the relationships. We're, we're relational people and you have to have the relationship first, which I think is common with a lot of communities. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of working with Native communities is the same as working with refugee, commu- refugee communities or communities, you know, that have undocumented folks. Um, and I think we just have to really be careful about how we approach that. So I think on the, on the university side, start with inviting guest speakers, right? That's a way to build relationships. You know, pay them an honorarium. Don't expect them to come and do it for free. Um, you know, do the land acknowledgement statements. Create a website that just talks about, you know, the local people and the university's connection to that or honoring of that or acknowledging that, um, you know, making sure that there's courses, you have native people on your campus, you know, before you go into a native community, are you actively trying to make sure that native bodies are on your campus? And I think that's the big thing is, um, it's easy to feel really good about completing a project in a community, but it's a lot um, more difficult to actually ensure that your campus represents those people, right? Has those people represented within the campus and that the campus represents those people. So the other thing for us is what are, what's the naming on our campus? You know, do we, are, are we acknowledging native people in any sort of way? Um, which I think for a lot of campuses, the answer is no. So there's a lot of groundwork that needs to happen before campuses um, go into native communities. You know, if the Native community comes to the campus, then that's a different situation. But, um, yeah, there, there's a tons that can be done that doesn't even require them stepping foot into a, a tribal community. Right. Just to start building those relationships and doing that acknowledgement. Yeah. Yeah. You know, acknowledging the expertise in the community, having people, you know, inviting people to come and be guest lecturers, all of those sorts of things that have worked really well with other communities can also work with ours. I think sometimes people feel like they don't know anybody or they don't want to be disrespectful and that just prevents them 
from incorporating us, right? It just, it just keeps us invisible because people have a lot of hesitancy. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, being able to provide advice to faculty is, you know, really important. Having that support for them, you know, even if it's just rec- having a list of recommended readings or things like that, or, or knowing the websites that can provide that information, I think is a great place for a university to start. Absolutely. Uh, little steps uh, in the right direction make a big difference. Right. And then in, and then in five, 10 years, and you can say right. we have this project and we've been working together. And that's so much better than like we went to the res and cleaned up a playground. Yeah. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit about visibility and we just had an election. And so um, there were a number of sort of uh, pieces related to Native communities that were in the news prior to the election, the voter suppression that was um, taking place in North Dakota around the ID um, laws and then also um, the uh, wins for um Native uh, women to uh, be uh, representatives in Congress in Kansas and and New Mexico. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, that civic engagement piece within uh, the Native community, particularly in relation to things like the U.S. Congress and and voting and, and other things. Yeah, I think um, I definitely think it's been building. I think our um, I think Indian country is really led by women. A lot of times you'll see the men, right? They're the pictures. and But really my experience has been that it's been the women. And I think when you look at, um, you know, the fact that we were able to get two Native women into Congress this year, that's been building. You know, that's been building through races at the state level. Um, and, and it's exciting. You know, I think there was a lot of su- more support for this election in Indian country just via like my contacts and my social media than I have seen in the past. You know, I think, um, I think tribes also have been pushing for, you know, district boundaries to be redrawn that allow them more say in elections. I think they pushed also for polling places on reservations. So I'm from Nevada and this year there were a number of reservations that had polling places within tribal boundaries. Um, so I think maybe we're just engaging more also in the process and feeling like we have uh, a say, you know, for a lot of tribes, they didn't get the right to vote until the forties, even early fifties. And I don't think people realize that, you know, because of our political status, um, you know, there was a lot of pushback that, that um, we shouldn't have the right to vote in in local or state elections, you know, as members of federally recognized tribes. Um, So, you know, I think it, I think it takes some time, right? So, I mean, for tribes that just got the right to vote in the late 40s, they haven't been voting for very long. So it's also, I think, about building this culture of civic engagement, which I think for the average American is sort of expected, right? Because you're you're trying to be part of a system. You want inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Natives, you know, we kind of in some ways want exclusion. So I think, um, you know, that a lot of work has been done and that is is really exciting. I think the voter suppression in North Dakota is a classic example of how policy and legislation um, is used to disenfranchise people and not just us. Right. But but lots of folks that um, that are considered to be threats to the status quo. Um, I was really happy with what was done, like the tribal response in North Dakota. I think mm-hmm. you know, tribes like Standing Rock really scrambled to try to get new IDs that had addresses. People don't 
understand how the reservations work. And I think, you know, again, back to that education piece, they don't understand that it's the tribes that determine streets and addresses. They don't understand that that actually takes a lot of resources to be able to do that. Um, Right, because that's you know, infrastructure building, right? It's infrastructure, yeah. And I mean, our money for infrastructure comes from the federal government and the federal government is not trying to just pour money on us, you know? Um, so for the tribes that have the economic development, yeah, they've created streets and grids and fire hydrants and all these other things. But for a lot of those in North Dakota, that's it's just not able to happen. Um, and so I, I think that they really took what happened and they were able to scramble and to make sure that, you know, their, their people had access to voting. Um, and that, I think that that's the biggest lesson, right? And I think it's a lesson for all tribes. These things can be taken away from us at any time. And we, ha- we can't be complacent and we have to engage in the political process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, I guess as our time comes to, to an end right now with uh, this podcast, I mean, I think for us, it was really important to, um, one, bring in diverse voices and experiences, um, and especially since November is um, Native American Heritage Month, um, the ability for us to think about the different communities that we engage with and, you know, some that we oftentimes ignore, right? Uh, but then also what spaces do we create to um, begin to to really promote equity and, and inclusion? So I want to thank you again for taking the time to share with us the work that you're doing at University of San Diego, your experience as a, a tribal liaison. And um, I guess before we leave, any kind of last closing thoughts or, or comments? Um, I think I just want to say thank you. Thank you to everybody who values community engagement. When I, I remember taking my first community, then it was community service learning course. Um, and I want to say the late nineties, it was a while ago, but uh, the framing was so different. And, mm-hmm. you know, here on our campus with all of the community engagement that we do and the leadership of like, Chris Nybe, um, the way that it's being framed, I think really empowers communities and it excites our students. And that's something else, you know, as our, as our institutions become more diverse, these community engagement opportunities become a haven, you know, for our students that struggle, especially on campuses like mine that are PWIs. Um, mm-hmm. So I really just want to say thank you to everybody. I think it, it's just such a, a thoughtful area in higher ed. And uh, I'm proud and happy to consider myself some, you know, an advocate of community engagement and somebody who really believes in the heart of what that means. So thank you to everybody for engaging in that work and pushing on their college campuses for that, because sometimes it's not seen as being as important. Well, thank you so much for Stephanie. It was so great meeting you. And again, thank you for the time. And I look forward to meeting you in person when uh, we're down in uh, San Diego for continuums of service. And um, USD has been such a gracious host for us for this upcoming conference. So I look forward to meeting you in person. Yes, you as well. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting conversation. Lots to dig into. Marisol, is there anything that that stood out for you from your conversation with Persephone? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Persephone's um, sort of conversation about the lack of uh, education about uh, 
Native communities that's taking place in uh, K through 12 and a lack of understanding about those communities really in a contemporary context is really important. But thinking about how universities are beginning to um, engage with those communities, right? We all have them. And um, and the things and steps that universities can take in both doing the land acknowledgement, but also specifically supporting uh, Native students and uh, creating opportunities to learn about uh, Native communities, particularly in the uh, contemporary context, is, is very important. Yeah, I really thought the land acknowledgement statement idea was a very concrete way for faculty members and others to take action. I also really liked what she suggested around, you know, there are specific issues when thinking about engaging with um, these communities that aren't going to work for everyone, you know, whether it's because the size of the community can't sustain it or um, the time isn't there to invest on the front end, but there's still a lot you can do. And I thought she provided a really a good host of examples of those kinds of things around honoring native communities, inviting guest speakers and paying them, thinking about the ways your campus is honoring or not honoring that history with naming and other opportunities on campus. I mean, I think there's a lot that folks who care about um, those populations can, can do that doesn't necessarily have to mean taking their time in a way you would traditionally expect. I was also very struck by Persephone's point about the invisibility of Native Americans in the way people, many white people and other other folks in the United States are educated about the contemporary world. And I had mm-hmm. this uh, this experience that this the conversation reminded me of when I first moved to Minneapolis, having grown up and lived uh, in the Northeast. Uh, I lived in a neighborhood called Powderhorn Park, and there was a bus that I took to the university campus. And one of the stops on the bus route was right by um, a an urban housing complex uh, created to serve urban Native American populations called Little Earth of United Tribes in Minneapolis. And so, you know, the bus stops. And this was like one of the first week I was living in, in Minnesota and a number of folks who live in Little Earth got on the bus. And I literally had this like powerful experience of shame that I had I realized in that moment that I essentially had experienced Native Americans as people who lived in history books. I didn't know any personally. There was no visibility in my world. But but I had allowed that to like just shape my understanding instead of, you know, being more thoughtful about that. And so then, you know, it was a a very different space that I was living in. And uh, I've hopefully learned a lot in the last 30 years. Uh, But I think for many Americans, that experience Mm -hmm. is Powerful, And I don't think people are always thoughtful about it when they then cross barriers. So when Persephone made that point about people being interested in working with Native communities and saying essentially, like, I'm interested in Native Americans, so I would like to work with you. I I thought about, you know, if somebody came to me and said, I've always been interested in Jews, and so I'd like to do something with you, like, that would seem incredibly weird. But I think people do, that approach just seems completely normal uh, to many people. And so just thinking about, again, being uh, that kind of reflection on one's own ignorance, and also that uh, not making other people kind of bear the burden of that ignorance as you engage. That, that just kind of really hit home for me. 
Yeah. And I think with that, it's sort of not also not letting the shame or sort of awkwardness uh, be a barrier for asking the questions that you need to be able to better understand um, how and uh, to best work with uh, Native communities. You know, for in terms of like what she talked about in the interview is um, the idea of relationships and how important that is as a beginning point and that it's not... um, you know, relationships take take time, and particularly in, um, I think, highly sensitive situations when we have such a power dynamic, oftentimes, um, not only between sort of universities and tribes, but a power dynamic in the way that we've learned about um, the Native American community in, in the United States. And so, um, you know, thinking about what sovereignty means, right, to... Uh, dealing with sovereign people, what's, what's the difference with that? Um, how she identified, you know, um, native communities, not only as an ethnic group, but as a political group. Right. And, and, and what does that mean in, in our work and, um, and interaction with, um, those communities, but starting with the idea of relationship building and, you know, some of what we talk about, what's the best practices and, in, in community engagement. And, and it is about that. And it is about long-term relationships and acknowledgement and, and respect overall. Yeah, I was reminded of, so my older sister, this is going to go a long way around, but I will work my way back. I promise. My older sister uh, served for 20 years as a diplomat in the U.S. Foreign Service, and she started in the mid 80s. And so when she started, there were especially men in the Foreign Service who had started their careers in like the 40s, okay, the 1940s. And so she had, you know, it was a very sexist organization at that time. uh, And But one of the things she said to me was that some of the worst offenders were not the oldest men, even though many of them were the most sexist, but they had a set of manners that kind of bounded their treatment of other people so that uh, they like they addressed everybody in formal terms, didn't matter, you know, gender, age, whatever. They wouldn't there were subjects they would never discuss with anyone in the workplace. And so it meant that whole territories they didn't go into. And I was thinking about that in this context that and, and so she was like just basically having decent manners in their interactions with others meant that a lot of things, even though they might have had particular attitudes, never uh, became a negative feature of the workplace for her. And the analogy I'm trying to make here, I will eventually get to, is, you know, I think many times what we're talking about is sort of just treating other people decently, respecting them, again, the you know, treating them the way they would, that we ourselves would want to be treated, et cetera. But people often in these cross-cultural encounters kind of lose their bearings and treat people in ways that they would never treat pe- members of their own groups or people whose experiences they're more familiar with. And so I think... I I think your point, Marisol, that it's it's good to ask questions. It's good to learn, but doing it in ways that just reflect ordinary, uh, you know, common decency, respect, thoughtfulness, uh, and and just uh, a recognition of uh, yeah, the, the sort of common humanity goes a pretty long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like nowadays that's something we've got to reteach. Yes. So I had a chance to um, also ask Persephone about um, the recent elections and the historic wins for uh, Native American women, particularly in uh, Kansas and New Mexico, and was really um, 
you know, moved by, by her statements and, and thinking about the, uh, political impact their election represents uh, for the community, but also in our broader understanding of contemporary Native American communities in the United States. Hopefully more colleges and universities will um, begin to to create and support uh, uh, positions like hers, tribal liaison, and other um, networks that um, support uh, particularly Native American students on their on their campuses. Yeah, I mean, again, thinking about what you can do where you are with what you have, that impacting Native populations doesn't necessarily mean going there and, you know, doing something. It means thinking about what's happening where you are and where are Native people in those spaces. And if they're not there, why not? And those kinds of things. And I think we don't often enough think of community engagement as changing things right where we are. It, you know, it, it, we're, we think of it as something where you go somewhere else to help or change something else. It, it, for me, that also connected back to our conversation uh, last time, I think, when we were talking about, uh, I was sort of offering some thoughts about the limits of reciprocity, and we had a little bit of mm-hmm. a conversation. And I think this goes at that, like we're talking about much more thoroughgoing uh, self-criticism and willingness to transform as a kind of necessary step for meaningful engagement. Uh, and and I thought, I thought Persephone did a great job of talking about the ways that changing the institution and and being prepared both to serve uh, students from all communities and and to then also build partnerships. I thought that, that for me was also really informative. Marisol, thank you very much for that interview with Persephone. I think there's a lot more that we could say both about the particulars of community engagement in the context of Native American communities, but also the broader ways that we all need to think about the way our work and our institutions need to change to really make good on the promise of full participation, both in higher education and more broadly, for the many communities who have historically been excluded. And yeah, so I thought that was just a great way to get us thinking about how to seize those opportunities to deepen the work we're doing and and engage uh, across boundaries of difference. That is today's episode of the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Tell your friends about the Compact Nation podcast. You can rate us on iTunes. That helps other people find the show. And you can tweet using the hashtag Compact Nation pod to share ideas with us for future episodes and feedback on ones you've listened to. So thanks again. You did it. Barely. (laughs) (laughs) The Compact Nation podcast is produced by Molly Leeper, Communications Manager for Campus Compact. Campus Compact is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and has over a thousand member colleges and universities across the country and beyond. If you want to learn more about Campus Compact, visit us at compact.org. You can send your comments, questions, and show ideas to podcast at compact.org or find us on social media with hashtag compactnationpod.